you got a Bible, grab it and get to 1 Corinthians 7. All right, that's where we're going to be uh, today. And I want you to know that if you are relatively new to our church family, uh, every summer, beginning right around Memorial Day through uh, July, uh, the elders and you all very graciously just grant me what is called a study leave. I've, I've been taking this every summer since I've been here. It's not a sabbatical. Uh, it's a study leave. The difference is on sabbatical, like I just disconnect. I'm not working. I'm out of here. In a study break, I'm still working 40, 50 hours a week. But instead of taking the 15 to 20 hours in weekly sermon prep, I would normally invest into this. I'm taking that time and redirecting it towards praying, planning, preparing the year's worth of sermon content and just overall vision and direction for us as a church. And it's such a gift to me. Also, I'm so looking forward for the next several Sundays to actually go to church with my family and like not be on, like not have to teach a message just to worship with them. So thank you for uh, investing into me that way. So what this means is that, uh, that this weekend is my uh, last weekend to preach for just a little bit. I will be back on Father's Day to do a very special uh, interview on that day. But then I'll be back in August to kind of launch our uh, fall message series. Uh, so next weekend, uh, Kyle Riley, our downtown campus pastor, is going to wrap, be wrapping up this series. And then we're going to launch into our summer sermon series. And uh, we're going to be going through the fruits of the Spirit together as a church this summer. And we're going to call it What the World Needs Now. And so you'll see, you'll be hearing from a bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll... Uh, be hearing from a, a bunch of our campus pastors. And then I've got a couple of very special guests that if you've been in our church for a while are gonna be familiar faces to you. And I'm not gonna tell you who they are. It's just gonna have to be a surprise, all right? Uh, so we've been in this series called Significant Other. We've been talking about relationships. And by the way, like I'm not even gonna talk about sex today. Like, aren't you? You're either disappointed or you're glad about that. And, and I'm really honestly, like, as I look around the room, I'm like, oh man, people came back. People came back, you know. It's like, I, I just have this like reoccurring nightmare about once a quarter that I stand up and preach and nobody's here. And I'm just so thankful that you guys came back, even though we've kind of talked about some really challenging uh, things, but God's been doing some incredible things through it. And uh, I heard about this um, married couple that um, he was having some health problems. And so they did a whole bunch of tests at the doctor's office. And so he and his wife go to the doctor to get the results of the test. And they walk in and the doctor said, hey, uh, I wanna speak to you first in private before we share the news with him. And so he brings the wife in and he sits her down and he says, listen, he goes, it's not good. Like your husband maybe has a year to live and he could possibly survive this if for the minimum of a year, you keep his stress level nearly at zero, which means like you gotta get up every morning and you gotta fix him a hot breakfast in bed. You gotta take care of the kids. You gotta let him go play golf with his friends whenever he wants. Like you gotta be at his every beck and call, meet all of his desires for intimacy. And if at the end of the year, you keep his stress at a minimum, he could survive. She's like, wow. So she leaves, she gets in the car, they're driving home. He said, honey, what did he say? She goes, he said, you're gonna die. That's what he said. <laughs> so some of you are like, that is so good, right? That's like, <laughs> I think if there's one thing that we can all agree on, regardless of our current relationship status, is that dating, relationships and marriage can be really hard. I mean, even the healthiest marriage relationships require a lot of hard, intentional work. Uh, chemistry with another will only take you so far before you begin to clash with a significant other. And the reason why is because we are flawed 
imperfect, broken, sinful human beings. And marriages are not rings, ceremonies, or honeymoons, but people. And since people are messy, relationships and marriages can be messy. Now, we've already walked through God's design for relationships and marriage and sexuality from Genesis 2 and 3. Last week, we walked through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul was being very pastoral. Like he is confronting and he's discipling the way that these brand new baby Christians in Corinth were viewing and practicing sexuality. They had been totally immersed within the cultural climate of Corinth, which was the sex capital of the world at the time. And Corinth made Vegas look like Sesame Street. And so they, none of them had grown up in church. None of them had any sort of Christian background, but Jesus saves them out of their darkness and brokenness and gives them brand new life. And so now what Paul does in this letter is he says, hey, listen, man, who you were is not now who you are in Christ Jesus. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You've been cleansed, washed, redeemed, and sanctified. And Jesus didn't just go to a cross so that you could acknowledge his presence, tip your hat to him, and then just kind of go on living life the way that you want to live it. But Jesus went to a cross and walked out of a tomb so that you and I might be transformed into a brand new person. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. It doesn't mean we will, won't struggle. It doesn't mean we'll have answers to all of our questions. What it means is step by step, even if I'm stumbling my way towards this, I am being formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. So last week I said, we're saved in a moment by grace through faith. And then the rest of our lives is a process of sanctification. And repentance isn't just, I'm really, really sorry, or I'm really sorry I got caught. Repentance is I'm going to take steps away from my life of sin and more steps towards the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Corinthians had been saved out of their brokenness, but now it has created significant issues in their personal lives and relationships. So chapter 6, Paul confronts their view of sexuality. Now in chapter 7, Paul is going to pastor them through their relationships um, their singleness, as well as their marriages. And so today in this message, what I want to do is just to kind of give you kind of a heads up, and we're going to walk through large portions of chapter seven. And I want to talk about um, single adults. I want to talk about divorce. And then sandwiched in the middle of that are principles around dating. All right, so what could go wrong? All right, so, so here we go. Uh, starting in verse one of chapter seven, Paul continues to answer some of their objections and questions that they had been submitting to him. And he says, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So in some capacity, like Paul had been receiving questions, objections from the Corinthians, and he's spending a large portion of this letter responding to them. Now, one of the keys in accurate Bible interpretation. What I mean by that is you read a passage and you're trying to discern what does this mean for my life? One of the things you have to do is you have to first discern um, who was the original audience and what did it mean to them? The way that it was taught to me is um, aim, author's intended meaning. 
So in other words, before I can apply a passage to my life today in 2022, I need to say, okay, who is the original author? Who is the original audience? What was going on there? What's the primary application for them? And then what is the overarching principle that I can apply to my life today? I say all of that to say that when we recognize that these new baby Christians in Corinth, they had gotten saved. And what was happening is that some of them were working as prostitutes in the sex temples when they got saved. And now they're like, well, what do we do with this? I've got several pastor friends that pastor churches in Vegas. And they talk about that. They say, man, we have people that come to our church that work on the strip and the casinos and the sex industry, and they come to church and then they get baptized. And now we got to walk them through what does that look like as far as their careers and what they do uh, for a living. And so in the Corinthian church, what was going on is that you had, because none of them had a church background, you had a lot of married couples that neither one of them were Christians when they got married. And now she came to church in Corinth and he didn't, and she got baptized and he didn't. And now he's going, wait a second, this is a bait and switch. I didn't marry a Christian. And they're going, what do we do with this, Paul? You had um, singles in the church in Corinth. And they're like, you know, Paul, um, I am single and I'm ready to mingle and I really want to be married, but it is a jungle out there, Paul. The dating scene in Corinth is crazy. Paul, I just met this girl on a dating app and I found out that she used to be a prostitute at the sex temple. And the reason why I know that is because I remember seeing her at the sex temple. And some of them are like, man, man God, Paul, like, I'm starting to lose hope that I'm going to find somebody. And so I'm thinking about lowering my standards. What are we supposed to do? Paul, is there ever a scenario where divorce is permissible? These are all the questions that they are submitting to him. And so I want to pick this up in verse 7. Paul starts here. He says, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet another verse that we're never going to put on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. <laughs> Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, so that would be single adults in the church in Corinth, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Wow. Like I've officiated a lot of weddings in my days as a pastor. And never once have I ever preached a marriage message on that verse. Could you imagine? Like we're gathered here today because Bill was burning with passion. And because Susan was all hot and bothered. And so Bill picked Sue and Sue picked Bill so they could extinguish the passions of their lust and holy matrimony, right? How romantic. So what's Paul doing? Well, look at verse 10. He says, but for those who are married, once again, Corinthian church, these brand new Christians, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. So he's speaking on the authority of God. A wife must not leave her husband and then verse 11, but, so he's offering some sort of concession here, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him and the husband must not leave his wife. So we'll talk about when is divorce ever permissible in a Christian marriage in just a minute, all right? 
So uh, he, he goes on and he says, now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted and I will share it with you. In other words, Paul is giving some pastoral counsel here, not a command. Verse 26, because of the present crisis, what I've already explained in Corinth going on, their relationships, I think it is best to remain as you are. So here's the overarching principle. Paul is saying, okay, brand new baby Christians in Corinth, you weren't walking to Christ. You didn't grow up in church. You, you get radically saved. He goes, whatever your relationship status at the time of your salvation, I think it would just be better if you stayed that way. So if you're married, you're married to a person that's not a Christian, man, stay in the marriage. If you're single, uh, just, just stay single if you can. That's the overarching principle that he's giving in their immediate context. Verse 27, if you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And, and if a young woman gets married, it's not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. And I'm trying to spare you those problems. Now, first, I want to just kind of address what Paul is saying to single adults. Now, because I've been married for 23 years next month, I am not an expert at being single, but I do remember what it was like. And I remember some of the feelings of fear and insecurity that I had that came along with that, wondering if I'd ever meet and find someone. I'm not an expert at being single, but I have been a pastor for the last 25 years. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that I've got hundreds of hours of meetings with people, counseling, coffee, lunches, processing the lives, thoughts, and passions of adults who happen to be single. What I want us to know as a church family is that the number of adult singles in our society is only increasing. For the first time in American history, there are more single adults as a fully formed generation than there are married. That's the first time in history. The median age of a first marriage has risen to 29 and a half for men and 27.4 for women. Uh, today's young adults, this generation, by the time they reach the age of 50, about one in four, 25% of them, will have remained single all of their lives. These are significant shifts in our cultural landscape. And so just as the church oftentimes hasn't dealt with divorce uh, in the church in a very empathetic, caring, Christ-like way, we oftentimes haven't uh, really approached, spoken to, or related to single adults in a very empathetic, encouraging way either. There's a book uh, called Celibate Sex, Singleness, and Life with Christ. And uh, in it, it describes uh, often the perspective that many Christian single adults have. So singles today are a widow of sorts, needing to be listened to and a framework for who we are and how we fit into the Christian family. What does it mean to abstain from sex while having urges? What does it mean to be content in one's singleness while longing for marriage? Can I be sexual without a spouse? Am I becoming less desirable as I age? How do I trust God in this? Should I use technology, AKA dating apps to, to date? I have serious reservations about this person I just went on a third date with, but I'm lonely. Should I stay in it? Are there enough eligible single people at this church? Are there enough eligible single people at the other church that I go to? <laughs> That's just a preacher joke. That's for me, all right? So. <laughs> I know you do it. All right. So uh, 
many of you, you're like, maybe there were these expectations around a quote unquote age that you thought you'd be married only to see that age come and go and you just didn't see your life going this way. Maybe some of you in your mid, late 20s, you're seeing all your friends getting married around you. They're having their second and even their third kid and you just love to have a second date. Maybe you've experienced as a middle-aged adult an unwanted or even painful divorce and you're trying to heal from that and you're like, okay, now what? Like, do I start all over again? Like, what does this mean for sexuality? Like uh, the dating scene, like all the rules have changed and it's just brutal. What do I do? Maybe you were widowed at a relatively young age and you wonder, okay, well, what now? Like how soon is it to start dating again? And what will others think? Do they think that I've waited long enough? And how, what is the place of grief? And what do I do with this guilt that I have? I say all of this to just say for many of us who are married and within the church, like as a church family, which is what I want us to be a family, is that we would just have a greater amount of empathy and that we would recognize that not all single adults come from the same perspective. It is the experiences are vastly different. And the amount of hurt and anxiety over this is just unprecedented. And I just want us to be aware and be more empathetic and encouraging. Like in our small groups, like just watch what all of our examples aren't just about marriage, but that we would genuinely show interest and that we wouldn't even unintentionally sort of give off the impression of like, hey, well, when are you gonna get hitched? Or like that you're half of a person or incomplete or you know, your life's waiting to begin when you walk an aisle. That just isn't the case. Paul's heart in addressing singleness in chapter seven is so that you would not be anxious about being single. And that's easier said than done. But Paul actually has a greater amount of credibility to do that than what I do. Because I could say it as your pastor, like, hey, don't be anxious about being single. You're like, easy for you to say, you're gonna go home with your wife. But Paul wasn't married. Paul was single and stayed single his whole life. So here's just a few observations about singleness. The Bible affirms it. The Bible affirms singleness, oftentimes when our society does not. And so I just wanna to speak to all of the single adults that are gathered here, whether you are content in that or not. And I just want you to know you are not half a person, you're a whole person. That you're not just waiting around for your life to begin when you walk an aisle. No, 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 you, you don't. Paul says in verse seven, I wish everyone were single as I am. He doesn't say, I'm really sorry that you are, but hold on. There's probably somebody out there for you somewhere. Like, that's not what he says. He goes, I wish that everyone could be. Jesus was single. And I oftentimes think it's sort of like we miss the fact that we worship a man who never married, never had sex and died single. And he was arguably the most complete person to ever walk the face of the earth. And once again, just like whenever I said that Jesus is tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. And we go, well, it's not really fair. He was God. No, he was fully God and fully man. I had no doubt that he probably desired companionship in some way. And yet he chose not to, uh, primarily because he had a mission. He was focused on that. And he was the most complete person to ever walk the face of the earth. This should be a major affirmation if you are a single adult listening to this right now. Well, why does the Bible affirm it? Uh, two big reasons. Here's the first one. The Bible views it as a gift. 
It views it as a gift. It could be lifelong or it could be for a season. There is such a thing as a spiritual gift of singleness. Now, spiritual gifts, for those of you that are not familiar, is usually a, a gift. So it's separate. It, it could overlap with natural gifts and abilities, but it's often very distinct from. And a spiritual gift is something that God grants to every believer when you become a Christian. There is something that the Holy Spirit empowers you to do that you're better at than most people around you. And it is meant to serve others and it is meant to expand the kingdom of God. And he says, there are some that actually have the gift of singleness. He says this in verse seven, each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's just better to stay unmarried just as I am. So there is such a thing as a gift of singleness. I would say just in my experience, anecdotally, that um, few feel that they have that gift. Like few feel that, that, that they have it. I was talking to uh, a couple of pastor friends of mine that were taking a spiritual gift inventory just to determine what their top spiritual gift was. And uh, they said, hey man, like, what'd you get? And he, he said, well, I, my top spiritual gift is martyrdom. But you know, it's kind of one and done. Like you can use it one time. That's like, that's it. And the other one was like, well, what does your gift come back as? And he goes, well, my number one gift came back as celibacy. It's like, I think I'd rather have martyrdom, right? I mean, it's like, so, so there is such a thing as a spiritual gift of singleness, but, but few people have that. But quite honestly, some people do have it. And uh, they are not half a person or anything like that. That, that. That's who they are in Christ. Now, if for the rest of y'all who are single and you know, I don't have that gift. I do not want to stay single for my whole life. What are you supposed to do? Well, Paul answers this in verse 32. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In other words, he says, as a single man, like you only have to worry about your schedule, your finances, like your, all your responsibilities, but you get married and now uh, you have somebody else who's merging their life with yours. And so your interests are divided. You've got to provide for, protect. And then uh, you have like, you know, kids that, that come into the equation and those little bundles of stress, I mean, joy, like that, like that's just going to complicate. That's, that's the primary point that he's making. And then he says the same thing for the ladies. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. That's huge. Verse 35, I am, uh, 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 I want you to do Whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. So the, the overarching thing is he's saying, hey, like when you get married, like your life gets infinitely more complicated. And I think it's easy for us to always look over the fence at other people's lives on Instagram or whatever and just be like, well, man, if I could only be married. And then you got all the married people, man, if I could only be single. It's like, I was, I was talking to uh, uh, one of our campus pastors. I said, hey, what are the most common prayer requests that you're getting from people? And it was startling what he said. He goes, the most common thing that I'm hearing is single adults coming up to me asking for prayer because they are lonely and discontent in their singleness. And I'm having a lot of married people who are coming up to me asking for prayer because they are lonely and discontent in their marriages. Uh, Eddie Camp said it this way. He goes, marriage is an attempt 
to solve problems together you didn't even know you had um, when you were on your own. And so it just gets infinitely more complex. And so what, what I even like want, want you to know is that, um, you know, it is my relationship with Jesus first. And then right behind that is my wife and my kids. And then you all are a distant third. It doesn't mean because I don't love you, because it means I do. And if I succeed at church, but I fail at home, then I fail completely. Paul is saying there is a disadvantage to marriage from the perspective of discipleship because your focuses are divided now. The, the next reason why he affirms it, the Bible affirms singleness as an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And um, whether that opportunity is for a season of your life or maybe a little bit longer, in those moments, he's essentially saying, like, I understand it. Like, I want to be incredibly empathetic here. Like, I understand the desire to want to find somebody. And maybe you're on the dating apps and maybe you're going to the nightclubs and you're trying to be set up. I understand all that. You're trying to find somebody. But Paul is saying, hey, don't get so focused on the future that you miss the present and the opportunity in which God wants to use you right now in the state of singleness in which you are to serve others, expand the kingdom, do things that maybe you won't be able to do whenever you get married uh, and really work on your character. It's reported right now that the average person, I think this is mostly males, I think, although I don't want to exclude the ladies, spends 10,000 hours playing video games by the age of 21. 10,000 hours. Have any of you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's work on the 10,000 hour rule? You do 10,000 hours at anything, you're a certified expert. And we have young adults at the age of 21 are certified experts at fantasy land. And I just want to say, hey, man, like we need you, not against video games, but we need your talents in the real world, not a fantasy one. Right. So you've heard the term FOMO, fear of missing out. I want to coin a new term, FOSO, fear of squandering opportunities. All right. I don't think it's going to catch on, but there it is. And this is an important opportunity to like serve others and advance uh, the kingdom and to really figure out like, who am I? I always get, I honestly just... Um, I hear this in the right tone. Whenever I do a marriage series and um, people who aren't married give me a hard time for doing a marriage series. And I can understand because of our history in the church. I just want to simply say, or, or teenagers, like, hey, I'm not, I don't plan to be married for a long time. I mean, the best time to work on your marriage is before you ever enter into one. And so it's this idea of like, I'm going to work on who I am first. I'm going to try to figure out my identity first. Lindsay and I got married in our early 20s, not because she wanted to. I, can, I convinced her, all right? And, uh, and uh, ooh, for me, uh, for her. All right, so, uh, and we got married and there was a lot of blessings and advantages of that. There's a lot of disadvantages in that in the sense that like we just didn't even know who we were apart from each other just yet. Like my brain didn't even fully develop till I was 25 and some would argue much, much later, all right? And, and so, so we hurt each other, me primarily hurting her more than she hurt me in our early years of marriage because we just didn't even really know fully who we were as individuals yet. And I would just simply say, man, take the time Take your time to just breathe. Take your time to really lean into who God is creating you to be while you are still single. And I want to say this. The Bible says very clearly that God wants to give you the desires of your heart. And once you begin to get those desires ordered right, usually that's when he does some of his best work in your relational lives. Hear me in this. The Bible does not obsess over singleness, nor does it idolize marriage. Let me say that again. The Bible does not obsess over singleness, nor does it idolize marriage. I want you to know that even the best earthly marriages will one day end. That the state of singleness 
will one day end. Your covenant relationship with Jesus never will. Marriage on earth at its best is temporary. We do not believe in eternal marriage. Now, if you're in a bad marriage, you're like, that's wonderful news. Uh, if, you're, if you're in a good marriage, it's a touch sad, right? And some of you are totally shocked. You're like, wait a second, you mean I'm not going to be married to my spouse for all of eternity? Like, I think you'll know them. I think you'll know that you were married to them. But marriage is an earthly covenant, one that doesn't extend into eternity. Uh, some of you might push back on that. Just go with the logic on this. I've known Christians that were married, their spouse died, they got remarried. Who are they going to be married to for all of eternity? All right, so there's no polygamy in heaven. All right, so, so it all comes to an end. And so what do we have left? What's the one thing that carries over into eternity? Man, your relationship with Christ. So understand this. Here's the encouragement for you. Shift your focus from finding the one to becoming the one. Spend all of your time, man, I'm just going to become the one. The Bible says nothing about how to find a good spouse. It says a whole lot about becoming the right kind of person. If you go to the Bible and you're like, man, how do I find the one? You're not going to find any answers. If you go to the Bible, how do I become the one? Every page answers your question. The assumption of the Bible is if you become the right kind of person, you will attract the right kind of person. Can I say it this way? Become the person, the person you're looking for is looking for. Go from, I'm not going to hunt anymore. I'm going to be the one hunted. All right. And uh, I remember like leading a small group of like college guys a few years ago. And I was like, hey guys, they were all single guys. I was like, hey guys, describe your uh, perfect woman. Like the woman you one day want to marry. And it was ridiculous. It was like, they were describing a creature out of Greek mythology. It's just like, you know, we want her to be beautiful and slender and, and have a great sense of humor and, and to be godly and want to do fun stuff with me. And I was like, guys, if you ever met that girl, she would never marry you, right? And it's like, <laughs> so keep it realistic, man. And so this, I think, kind of, if we could kind of shift gears into just principles uh, of dating. One of the common questions that came in with all the questions you guys texted in was around dating. And I'm just hearing from so many of you how the dating scene nowadays is so challenging and, and honestly, like really brutal. And, I, and uh, what I want you to know is that dating is a relatively new concept in human history. It came about in the early 1900s. So the whole concept of dating is only about 100 years old in comparison to all of human history. It used to be, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is all good, but I do think that the, it's just something to notice, is that it used to be that a, a man would go through a woman's family in order to get to her, which actually now that I have three daughters, I actually think that's pretty good. Like I, I think I, I like the logic of that. Uh, but now we've got um, setups and nightclubs and dating apps and listen, like I'm not against dating apps per se. And I know there's like some Christian dating apps and that sort of thing. I just think the way to be really careful with it because we can commoditize people. So you see somebody's profile and, and it's like, oh, don't like them, swipe, you know, swipe, swipe, swipe. And, or, or maybe, oh, I kind of like them. There's a little bit of an interest. And then you're kind of waiting for them to hit you back. Somebody described dating apps this way, the Amazon Prime for delivering hot people. And there's just a lot of minefields in that. Uh, John Tyson described dating this way, the heartbreaking, painful, confusing, murky journey of meeting people with a vision of moving toward marriage. Now I would say in a lot of uh, the dating scene nowadays, there is an overemphasis on um, 
physical appearances, and I'm not saying that that's unimportant. I'm just saying we, there's an overemphasis. There's a lot of an emphasis on feelings rather than character. Romance is a modern invention. And historically, uh, marriages were like a group decision. It wasn't two young people like running away with each other wrapped up in romance. Uh, romance is Hollywood selling us a story. And if you just like jump from one serial dating relationship to another, like at any time that you're not in a relationship, you're overly uncomfortable. You just need to stop for a minute and say, man, if I'm always serially dating somebody, then I'm constantly on a job interview. And how many of you are totally honest on a job interview? Oh, come on. All right, so, so we're just constantly putting the best version of ourselves forward. They're putting the best version of themselves forward. And I'm becoming what somebody else wants me to be so that they don't reject me. Another question that comes in, and maybe you've wrestled with this, is if you're a Christian, should you date or marry somebody who is not? Now, once again, in the Corinthian letter, Paul is talking to people that were not Christians and maybe they had gotten married and now one of them becomes a Christian and the other one doesn't. And his counsel to them is he says, stay married. Like your, that's not reason enough to split up. Like your relationship with Jesus just might win them over. And so we take that principle and we apply it over. And like, I'm a single adult and I'm a Christian and I meet a non-Christian. Uh, I think I'm gonna date them, you know, missionary dating. You know, I, say, I think I can convince them. I think I can lead them to Jesus. Now hear me in this. I've seen examples where that can happen. So here's the short answer to, if you're a Christian, should you date or marry somebody who isn't? The Bible doesn't prohibit it. It also doesn't recommend it. And the reason why is because dating and marriage is hard enough as it is, let alone add the complexity of a spiritual mismatch. Now, if you're a Christian in name only, not really gonna change the way you live your life, man, knock yourself out. But if you are sincere about following after Jesus, it should cause you significant pause because you have to ask yourself, is this other person that I'm merging my body and my life with, by the way, going to help me look more like Jesus or discourage me away from it? The term the Bible uses is unequally yoked. And we don't talk that way anymore, but this was an agrarian society. And so in, in this farming culture, to plow a field, they would put two animals of equal size, speed, and strength. They would yoke them together to plow a field. And the best farmers knew that you did not stick uh, animals that were of different sizes, strengths, and speeds in the same yoke. They would tear each other up. They'd tear up the yoke. They'd tear up the field. And so he says, find somebody who is of equal size, strength, and speed spiritually because life is hard enough as it is. So here's my counsel to those of you single adults who are Christians and you really wanna be married one day, man, ditch the dating apps, dip the nightclubs. You focus on Jesus and you run as hard and fast towards Jesus as you possibly can. And the Bible says that he wants to give you the desires of your heart. And just one day you might wake up and you're sprinting toward Jesus and you see somebody else out of your peripheral sprinting towards Jesus at the same speed you are, convince them to marry you. That, that, would, be my, that would be my counsel, all right? but there's inevitably gonna be like problems in a marriage relationship. And the problem isn't that you married the wrong person. This is like where no fault marriage came into play. The, the problem is that uh, there is something wrong in our person and we need Jesus to make us a new person. And so if you start looking for a, another flawed human being to do for you what only Jesus can do for you, you know, fix me, complete me, make me happy, give me an identity, remove my loneliness, you're just not gonna find it. 
Now, there is a guy who can do that, and his name is not Ryan Gosling. His name is Jesus Christ. And so walk into a relationship. You think that this created person can only do for you what creator God can only do for you. You will spend your life perpetually dissatisfied, frustrated with your spouse, your coworkers, and your friends. Because as I've said earlier in this series, whoever you idolize, you will eventually come to demonize. Usually around year seven, they call that the seven-year itch. And I think there's nothing magical about that number. I just think that's right around the time when it dawns on you, this person isn't going to become the person I was hoping they'd be. Paul mentions where separation and divorce might happen. And I don't have enough time to do a full exposition on what the Bible teaches about divorce, although I'm going to address it. I did spend a much more comprehensive amount of time on it in our Sermon on the Mount series that I did a few months ago. So you can go back and check all of that out. But usually problems in a Christian marriage, right? So where two people are following after Jesus and they've got issues, usually comes down at a foundational level just like a house. Like if you see hairline cracks in the ceiling, you see the door jams not matching up and the, the floors are crooked, you got a foundation problem. And so it's at a foundational level where two Christians in a marriage, here's what's happening. They've skipped steps and they start using Bible verses like darts. And it's tragic to see. And I've had so many married couples in my office where it ends up, they just start playing a game of Bible verse darts. They dehumanize each other. They're not kind to each other. And so he pulls out a Bible verse, Dart, and he says, well, the Bible says you're supposed to submit to me, woman. <laughs> and then she pulls out one of her darts and she says, well, I'd be happy to submit to you if you would sacrificially love me as Christ loved the church, right? And it's like, and it's like they just like throw these like spouse verses at each other. So what I, I want to get real, real practical here. A drowning person doesn't need a Greek word for life jacket. They just need you to throw them one. And so some of you right now that are just drowning and in this relationship, this marriage where you just can't see straight and you're trying to figure your way out of it. Let me just kind of give you the relational structure of a healthy marriage that the Bible lays out. The first step is that you're a Christian first. And I know that sounds simplistic, but oftentimes we, we're just not even acting like Christians towards each other. The whole fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We see this in Genesis where God created Adam and Adam was in communion with God, a Christian. He was walking with God. And then God said, well, it's not good for you to be alone. And so he gave him a friend in Eve. And Eve became his companion. And he said, man, at last, she's like me, but she's so unlike me. And she is an helper and she is an encourager. And I want to help and I want to encourage her. She's a friend. And then the last step is God gave marriage and sex and said, be fruitful and multiply. So the uh, structure of a healthy Christian marriage is Christian friend and spouse. So if you find yourself in this position where you and your Christian spouse have locked horns and you're not quite for sure what the next steps are, go back to these steps and say, hey, we're gonna be Christians first. Now let's work on our friendship and then we can get to all the spouse stuff. Can I say to those of you that are single adults and you're looking for somebody to be married, Pick a spouse, pick someone that you'd be honored to suffer with because even the best marriages are really, really hard work. C.S. Lewis said, sex is about naked bodies. Friendship is about naked personalities. 
and you just go back to, hey, hey, let's just start, and let's just start investing in our friendship. It's easy to look over the fence at other people's relationships and say, man, the grass looks so green over there. And the grass always is going to look greener on the other side. And in that instance, don't sell the house, just fertilize and water your lawn. And can I just say, right now, work for your spouse to be your very best friend. Like when you got married, you created a circle of intimacy that nobody else is allowed inside of um, but your spouse. And I'm not just talking physical, I'm talking friendship. I'm talking emotional. And some of you'd be like, no, no, I got like a friend of the opposite sex outside my marriage. And I actually think that's really healthy. No, it's not. It's cancer. No, no, you don't understand. She's just my work wife. No, no such thing as a work wife. Right? If you're married to your spouse. No, no, Aaron, you don't understand. There's this really sweet guy at the gym and I'm not really attracted to him. Not really anyway. Not really my type. But, but uh, we like to confide in each other about problems in our marriages. And it's totally okay because it's helpful to get a guy's perspective. No, no. You are opening the door. Every affair started with a friendship. And you're opening the door. You're actually violating that circle of trust. And some of you are like, Pastor Aaron, you're supposed to be solving conflict, not creating it. No, actually right now, and I say this pastorally, for some of you, I'm trying to start a fight that will hopefully save your marriage. See, you can have the pain of surgery, a really hard conversation, an ending of a friendship outside of your marriage over the pain of cancer. So if you allow that, you're allowing something destructive to stay alive in your marriage. Surgery leads to life. Cancer leads to death. You choose your pain. Well, some of you be like, well, what if we can't resolve this? Like we tried, like we tried to be Christians. We tried to be friends. Like it's just not working. Like, is there ever a permissible way out? Like, is, does the Bible ever allow divorce? Well, let me just give you this principle. The Bible teaches divorce should not be a first response, but it can be a last resort. See, many of us have bought into the myth of the one and we thought, well, I got problems because I married the wrong person. So let me divorce them and go find the right person. But I just want you to know that all marriage does is it just reveals who you really are. Marriage does not create new problems in your life. It just reveals the ones that are already there. Like a tube of toothpaste, marriage is the squeeze revealing the contents. And some of you are like, not me. Man, I was never like this until I met her. Wrong. You were always a jerk. Now they're just witnesses, all right? <laughs> so it just reveals who you are. And understand that the Bible says that God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. This is oftentimes where the church has gotten this wrong. He doesn't hate divorced people. He hates what divorce does to people. And the other group of people that hates what divorce does to people are the people that go through divorce and the kids of those who go through divorce. So Jesus would say, Matthew 19, let no man separate what God joined together. It is not a contract, it's a covenant. A contract is that little receipt that you sign at the restaurant. A covenant is something that goes much deeper. So like my favorite sandwich, there's this little sandwich shop here on the north side of India. I won't get, give the name because I don't want to make it seem like I'm favoring anybody. But like, I, but I love this sandwich shop and they've got this sandwich that's just killer. It's called Thanksgiving on a bun. All right. And I go there and uh, it just, oh man, do yourself a favor sometime. Find me after I'll tell you. Right. And, uh, and uh, it's just, it's like turkey and dressing and cream. Oh, so good. All right. And so, uh, and I'll sign the little receipt, you know, for that. But here's the deal, man. Like if I find another sandwich shop that can serve up the same sandwich at, in a better way at better prices, I'm out. 
I will violate the contract. But a covenant is deeper. A covenant, a contract says, I will as long as you will. A covenant says, I will, even if you won't. And by the way, that's what God has given to us. Jesus is not a contract, he's a covenant. And God says, I will continue to extend grace and mercy to you, even if you don't uphold your end of the bargain to me. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Well, does that mean that I should just let my spouse mistreat me? Does that mean that I should just allow them to cheat on me and just stay, you know, a dutiful little wife or a faithful husband? No, that's actually not what that means. So is there ever a time when the Bible allows for divorce? Yes. Three instances. One, in the situation of adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is trying to be trapped by the religious leaders. So they're asking him all these questions. He actually quotes Genesis. He says, let God is joined together. Let no man separate. And he goes, but there is a concession for this in the event of adultery, in the event of unfaithfulness. And the reason why, as we've already established, is that sex is not just merely biological. It is a supernatural mingling of the souls that two people do to consummate their marriage covenant. And it's such a deep violation when that is violated that Jesus, listen, concedes that you may divorce in that situation, but he does not command that you must. And that's very important. He goes, hey man, you might walk away but you don't have to. You could walk away, particularly if it's unrepentant sexual immorality where your spouse gets caught, they don't care, they're gonna keep doing it. But divorce is not a first response, it's a last resort. It's kind of like amputation. You only amputate a part of your body to save the rest of your body. Like if you spring, sprain an ankle, you don't walk into the doctor's office and the first thing is like, I don't care what you say, cut it off. It's like, well, let's try to rehab it first. And I'd say the same thing in marriages where adultery has happened. Let's see if there could be rehab. Because even in situations of sexual immorality, he says, try and see if there might be healing, repentance, and restoration. See, marriage on earth is an image of God's covenant relationship with us. And we have been unfaithful to him over and over and over. And he has not left us. If Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And if a dead body can come back to life, then a dead marriage can do the same. Let me give you uh, two last ones. They're going to go very quickly. And then this message does not have a conclusion. It just ends. All right. So here's the second one is, is in the situation of abandonment. In the situation of abandonment. It says in, in verse 15, if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving abandonment, let him go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other for God has called you to live in peace. In other words, he's saying to this couple, they were not married when, they were not Christians when they got married and then she became a Christian and he didn't. And he's like, I, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out. Uh, then Paul says, hey, 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 let him go. And you know what? Your conscience is clear. You, you didn't initiate it. That was his decision. And he walked out. Um, and then the third is in the situation of abuse. And in such circumstances, when a spouse engages in abuse, what they are doing is they are abandoning that person. They are violating the covenant in a very violent and real way. As a pastor, I've had the heartbreaking experience of walking. Um, this is mostly with the ladies. I'm not saying it can't happen with the man, 
but mostly with the ladies where she is in an abusive relationship with a man who calls himself a Christian. And he says, you can't divorce me. You'd be an adulteress if you did. And I would say he's wrong because his abuse, whether that's physical, spiritual, or emotional, is a violation of the covenant. And in that example, Jesus concedes that divorce could happen. I want us to be a church that shows mercy. And so maybe some of you feel like when you walk in here, you've got a scarlet letter sewn on your chest. And I want you to know that there's only one scarlet letter sewn on your chest. That's R for redeemed. I mean, you're redeemed by the person of Jesus Christ. Some of you walk in here today and you're like, I'm so ashamed because I've been divorced and it's like the biggest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I understand what you're saying, but I wanna lovingly say to you, no, that is not the biggest thing that's ever happened to you in your life. The biggest thing that's ever happened to you in your life is that Jesus went to a cross and took on your sin and walk out of a grave so that your divorce wouldn't have the final say. And so if you've had an affair, whether you've been cheated on or you're the one that's been cheating. If you've been abused, I want you to know that as a church family, we just wanna come alongside you and walk with you through that. And divorce is an option, but separation even momentarily is a must. And we just wanna walk with you through that. And we wanna be a hospital for hurting broken people so that you might experience healing and get back up on your feet. Jesus went to a cross, not so that you would continue to be pinned down by your guilt and your shame, but to set you free from it and to make you a brand new creation. And today that can happen in an instant. No matter how hopeless your situation might seem right now, it is not too hopeless for our God and he will meet you right in that seat that you're sitting in right now. Father, thank you for these precious people. I'm so sorry that many of them are in pain right now. Maybe it's because they are lonely and wanna meet somebody, but it just hasn't happened. God, I pray that you would comfort them by your spirit right now to know that you've got them right where you want them. And God, I pray that you give them the desires of their heart as they seek after you. God, I pray that if there is a man or a woman who is in a marriage relationship right now and it's just not working, that they would begin to just rekindle the flames of their relationship with you first and then their friendship and that you would do an absolute miracle in their marriage. God, I pray that the enemy would not have the final say in this but that you would give us victory through redemption, reconciliation, and healing. And Father, finally, if there is anybody here that's in an abusive relationship and needs help, I pray that you would first of all comfort them by your spirit, that somehow we could find out about it as a church family, and that we could come alongside and support and love and encourage so that they can find themselves in a season of safety, peace, and health. You're the God that can change lives. We ask you to do that today in Jesus' name. And everybody says.